ConnectCloud. Get connected, cyber safe is our mantra. From tailored managed security solutions to our next generation cloud platform, MetCloud will drive your organization forward and help it thrive. You can keep up to date with us in all things cybersecurity by following us on Twitter at MetCloud underscore com. We're also on LinkedIn and YouTube. You can find the links to our social media pages and blogs via our website, metcloud.com. Welcome back to another episode within Series 3 of the Vanguard Podcast, everyone. And today my guest is the founder and CEO of Voicecape, John Doyle. Voicecape is on a mission to build sustainable tenancies through more effective customer engagement. And one of their top values is innovation. And as a company, they recognize the power of harnessing technology to better the lives of some of society's most socially disadvantaged people and help their customers better connect within their communities. He's a graduate of John Moore's University and the host of his own podcast, The Social Housing Podcast. So a little bit of competition, but hopefully he can give some tips and tricks as well. John, welcome to the Vanguard Podcast and thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me on the podcast, Scott. It's a pleasure. I'm a little bit nervous because you're a podcaster yourself. So any tips and tricks you can give me, I'm all ears. Well, my philosophy tends to be the blind leading the blind. Yeah. Oh, we're going to get on very well. John, I, I would. I think you've got a great story. You know, I've done my research, done the background, and really want to get an understanding of, of Voicecape and John Doyle, of course. But tell me the journey that you've, you know, from, from school, what you did, and, and, and how it's brought, to you, brought you now to, to, to Voicecape and, and being, the, being the public voice of social housing. Well, that's a, that's a loaded question, Scott. Yeah, I graduated... Uh, a long time ago, a long, long time ago, with a degree in accounting, of, in accounting and finance. And the only thing that doing that degree taught me was that I did not want to be an accountant. So it's like I started to all finish, came out of there and went pretty much straight into sales. You know, I thought it was going to be sales and marketing because back in the late 80s, it was all sort of put out there as sales and marketing. But essentially, I became a salesman. Um and I ran through a number of different businesses, but it's fair to say at this late stage of my career, um, I've spent two years in my entire career working for other people. Yeah. One of those was in 1992 when there was a recession and it was any port in a storm. But generally speaking, and the other one was the first year. So most of the time I've worked for myself. How we got to, to Voicegate, that was 1998. So I was probably in the workplace for about... 15, sort of 13 years before that, with a variety of different businesses, which were essentially all sales driven. And I was pretty good at selling. And I wasn't very good at taking instructions from other people. And those two elements often send, you know, lead you to be an entrepreneur because I just, I didn't get on well with management. And I had a, a streak of arrogance, I suppose, which made me think, well, I can do that better myself. It took me a long time to realize that was, wasn't perhaps the best way forward because I went every man older was I fell down it and my only real strength was climbing back out of it and carrying on so fast forward then to Voicescape well it wasn't called Voicescape it was founded in 98 and it was called Song Player it couldn't be more different my current uh, colleague who works with me Dan who was a co-founder in 98 he still gigs every weekend and I was a bit of an amateur guitar player and we came across um, a business, a previous business, that we thought we could take onto the internet. 
And that was the genesis of songplayer.com in 1998. Now, one of the things I was pretty good at at that point was raising seed capital on blue sky ideas. I was fairly convincing at the front end, perhaps not as good on the execution, but I could get people to invest. So we took Songplayer um, as a concept right at the height of the dot-com boom in 98, raised about 450 grand's worth of seed capital in a couple of rounds. And then just to show how crazy it was, in 2000, we managed to float that business on the old OFX market. It doesn't even exist anymore. Yeah, Yeah. no, it doesn't. That's right. It was rubbish anyway, but we floated it on that market at a valuation of about 10 million quid and raised a million pound with about 57 quid worth of revenue. So it just shows you how mad the dot-com boom thing was. Wow. But interestingly enough, it was a pure business-to-consumer proposition. And if you think about that, how many of those are left that were actually founded in the UK? I mean, obviously, we've got the big ones like eBay and um, Amazon, but even one of the superstars at the time was lastminute.com. And even as a concept, last-minute booking of, you know, that's such a an archaic process these days. They've gone. So what we didn't realize was, Back at that time, raising a million pound was just pointless. It needed to be tens of millions to really fulfill a, a consumer proposition. We ducked and dived. We, you know, we we realized very, very quickly in about 2002 when the dot-com bubble burst, we weren't going to survive. So I changed tack and went through a various different iterations of business, just really trying to keep the thing going until 2004, when we came up with the idea of VoiceScape. And it was born off the back of something as mundane, if you like, or as ridiculous as ringtones. I don't know if you remember back in 2003, 2004, everybody had a Nokia. Yep. You know, we're a Nokia now, right? But Absolutely. Everybody, everybody had a Nokia. And everybody had what were called monotone ringtones. Absolutely. And somebody decided, wouldn't it be nice if you could play tunes on them? And, and it was mad, but it was. It was a business there for a while, and it saved us. And we used that as a a start of a 10 in terms of building applications to do with telephony. And then by 2004, I changed the name to VoiceScape, and we built a number of different applications. Both, I mean, with telephony, it's fairly simple. There's outbound and there's inbound. And we built a number of different applications, and we had a strategy. And it's interesting because, you know, this notion that I've got of hope is not a strategy. If I look at the phases of the business, the first phase as a dot-com boom, hope was the only strategy. You know, there wasn't a strategy. I remember the, the, the initial chairman who put a chunk of cash in and who himself made hundreds of millions from the dot-com boom. So I was listening to him when he said to me, what are you going to do with the 20 million that you make? And I was like, you know, I was thinking, I've got no idea what he's talking about, how that's ever going to happen. But it did impact my brain. And we were very much hoping that would happen. It didn't. So we went from hope as, in, as the only strategy. And then when we got to about 2004, for the next, I'd say, half a dozen years, my strategy was channel partners and, you know, a number of joint ventures. And I'd still say that even within that kind of a strategy, there was a lot of hope. I'm not a big advocate personally of channel strategies and 
you know, basically expecting other people to bring home the bacon. And we went through that for, as I said, about half a dozen years, made a reasonable living. But what we didn't have was control of our own destiny. No, you know, you can't whip a channel partner to sell more of your stuff. No, they don't want to. No, that's right. And, and similarly with joint ventures, you're only as good as the person you're doing the joint venture with. And I'm not decrying the partners we had or the people we were working with, but it's fair to say I took a view um, which was this isn't getting me where I want to get to and all yep. the people in my business. So by about 2010, that's when we took on a view which was, you know what, we need to win our own customers. We need a direct market, direct-to-market strategy um, that, you know, we might not be that good. We might fail, but ultimately we're in control of our own destiny. And that's what got us into the social housing space because initially the social housing vertical, if you like, was in conjunction with um, a joint venture partner. And it wasn't just one vertical. There were a number of verticals, but I knew that the social housing vertical was a rich vein to tap into. And so we did a restructure in about 2012 and went directly for that market ourselves. Um, and I wouldn't say the rest is history because it's a story in the making. What, again, like everything, what I didn't realize with that sort of semi-public sector space, having never worked in that environment previously, was just how slow and how conservative those buying cycles can be. But we persevered and we, we built a, a solid business out of it. So that's kind of a potted history of, of how we've got to where we are, very sort of thumb, thumbnail sort of sketch. Yeah, no, I love it. And, and you know, one of the things that, that, that I like about the story are the pivots, you know, because we all started, and, and not only the pivots in your, in your life, you know, being qualifying with a degree in accountancy and finance and going, ah, type thing, you know, I don't want to go down that route. Um, you know, I did the same thing. I, I'm, a, I'm a qualified toolmaker. Um, I wouldn't know how to turn on a lathe now. Um, but so, you know, we all have pivots in our careers and, and, and our lives, but it seems to me that you're quite flexible and, and certainly open to the ideas of, you know what, the business is not going to go down this route. So let's pivot. Let's take what we've learned in the previous two years, three years, four years. Let's take it down this route because there's more of an opportunity here. Okay, we got to this far um, and we did quite well, but, you know, that's not sustainable. So we're going to pivot again. So would I be right in saying that, yes, they are leaps of faith, but they're calculated leaps of faith based on experiences learned and, and market conditions? Would that be fair? I think it is a, f- a very fair comment, Scott. I think yep. some are more planned and thought out than others, if I'm yep. truly honest. Yep. The, first, the first pivot was pure the dot-com boom thing. Yes. I remember we were, a, as I say, we were selling music tuition online. It was super clever what we had, but it was just way, way too early. Sure. And I was listening to, um, this is back in about 2000, I was listening to the radio and I heard, as mad as it sounds today, that Bank of America were pulling out of online banking. They've obviously yep. got back in since then, but back, at that time, that's what they were thinking. And the explanation that the guy gave on the radio or, or the commentator of a Bank of America was, we've worked out that cost of customer acquisition outweighs customer lifetime value. And I stopped and scratched my chin and thought for a minute, what is he on about? And then a light bulb went on my head. That was exactly our problem at some point. Yeah. Yep. We were never, ever going to make any money. In fact, the more customers we won, the faster we were going bust. 
And off the back of that, that was the first major pivot. That's what everybody had invested in in the, in the PLC on OFX. But it was literally just a, a light bulb moment. And within a month, I had a board meeting and just got rid of all the workforce and changed direction from the basis of, right, how much cash have we got left? Yes. What can we do? So not massively considered, but just recognizing we're, we're going to go bust. So let's save the money and then see what happens next. And then the next major pivot was two in one, really. We decided that business to consumer, we just couldn't compete. We needed to go business to business. And when I mentioned the ringtones, we were actually a provider for uh, like the Metro Free Paper for Channel 4, for a load of big brands, but we were the engine underneath, if you like, doing the do. Um, And that was more comfortable because at least we knew these guys, we knew where they were, we could negotiate contracts and we could plan what we were getting paid. Yeah. yeah. Again, even, you know, 2004, I remember thinking 2003, 2002, 2003, 2004, we were still a PLC and that was still kind of in my mind. I look back now and laugh, but thinking to myself, how can a PLC business be selling ringtones um, it's that definitely is not sustainable. We need to find a business for the future. Um, and that's when we pivoted again in terms of, right, the, the ringtones were the end product, but the platform that delivered ringtones back in the day, there were no such things as short code text messages. It was all done on premium rate telephony. Of course. Yeah. So we were in that space providing that platform and then realized actually why don't we use that platform for non-premium rate things? Let's use it for more business-to-business applications. And it's interesting that our first sort of major breakthrough in that line of thinking was with a company called, with Eddie Stolbart. We provided what they called a driver line service, probably for about 15 years. We only terminated it about two years ago. But we provided this service, which is where the drivers, if they had any issues with deliveries or accidents, whatever, on the road, they could call into this line every day because it took a massive load of burden off the contact center in Warrington. Of course. Yeah, yeah, of course. So that was the first kind of evidence that, oh, yeah, actually, if we build smart applications for specific problems, and I think that's that's really the key of that pivot because when we got into social housing, we we've initially grafted a service from automotive. We used to do lots of customer satisfaction stuff for the likes of Arnold Clark and Lookers and people like that. And we took that into the first social landlord that I knew personally. And I said, do you think this will work in your space? I think there's an application. And there was. But what was great was as soon as we started working with social landlords, there were lots of applications. Because in essence, if you just provide in a level of automation to move away from manual processes, it doesn't sound very glamorous, but there's tons and tons of that sort of stuff going on in local government and in social landlords. And so that's that's very interesting. So what was what was the key moment then to to go from, you know, you just spoke about how you pivoted into social, you know, social housing and that and and that that sphere. What what was what was that light bulb moment that just went, you know what, this is where we need to be? I think Again, it's a good question, Scott. The key key moment there was after we put after we kind of iterated our automotive product or service into the housing space, 
two landlords within a very short space of time came to us and said, could we use this approach? So in other words, outbound telephony, very simple structures calling people. Could we use this approach to help us chase rent? Yeah. Oh, okay. So okay. yeah, so I just said, okay, how, talk, talk to me, because I'm not a technical guy, which is great really, because you know my guys are super technical. They can do all of that bleeding edge stuff. Yeah. I'm the guy who asked, well, if I can't understand it, I can't sell it. And I'm, I like to keep it really simple. So explain it to me. So I said the same thing to um, these social landlords. How does your rent system work? How does your, your collections process work currently? And they talk through a system which probably hasn't changed for 25 years. And I've got to be also really honest, Scott, a lot of them are still using very, very similar processes, which is a challenge for them. I'm but sure. We kind of took that insight and went, yeah, we can, we can automate that process in a number of ways. And like everything, the big question is, does it work? And we, we put it into one landlord and we thought, okay, if we can get a 20% response rate, but, you know, basically an automated system calling out, chasing people who were in arrears, if we can get a 20% response rate, bearing in mind how much money they spend trying to get that currently, that would be a fantastic result. And it blew the doors off. It came in at 42%. And everybody thought, okay, you know, yeah, exactly. But perhaps that isn't sustainable for us. It'll, it'll you know, taper off. Truth of the matter is, in the last 10 years, our response rates have gone up to more like 66%. And you think, wow, why is that? And it's just understanding, and this is something that's evolved in, in that sector, people who live in affordable houses, anybody living in a house, they don't want to lose the house. And if they're a bit behind on the rent, it doesn't mean they're a bad person. Exactly, yeah. You need to engage with them and understand their situation. 100%. You need to be able to engage with them in a cost-effective, consistent manner. Yeah. That's what we've been able to bring to the space. And it's, it's enabled those contact rates to be much higher. And getting to the business of it from my perspective, it, in, it guarantees a fantastic return on investment. Yeah. And that's, that's really key to, you know, ultimately if we're selling software as a service and it yeah. doesn't provide the service, it gets turned off. So that's right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That was a big, that, you know, if we're brutal about it, the biggest challenge for social landlords 10 years ago was collecting rent. Yeah. Here we are in 2022. The biggest challenge for social landlords this year will be collecting rent. Yeah. Because, you know, ultimately, we're looking at a section of society that needs affordable housing. And they, without doubt, you know, without getting political, everybody knows the pressure that's coming into the economy right now, cost of living crisis, it's more compounded on the people who've got less. And they tend to be um, the clients of our clients, whether that's social landlords or whether that's local authorities looking at arrears on council tax. It's the same people with the same challenges. Unfortunately, we've been able to develop services that we know engage these people in a way that works for everybody. I think that's fantastic. I, I, I love it. I, I, I can understand the concept. I can actually see the, the how it works, and it, it, it's brilliant. I think it's genius. Um, but, you know, in, in, your, uh, in your own words, you know, it was just finding fi- – Finding a solution that fitted a, a a vertical market, and then adapting what was effectively 
um, a product you already had on the shelf, but adapting it to that market. And now, you know, it's it sounds like it's absolutely paying dividends, not only for yourself, but also for your clients, which is great. Um, uh, thanks for that overview. I, I, I found that riveting. As an ex-telephony guy as well, um, mm-hmm. talking about telephony and IVRs and everything like that, I I, I was uh, I was in my element, you know, off X and and all the good stuff that we've spoken about in the past. That's I, I uh, it was it was really interesting. If data had a sound, it could be this. The sound of important and sensitive information leaking out of your business. MedCloud. Get connected. Cyber safe. I want to just take it to a, a, another part of the podcast that we we like to talk about here at the Vanguard Podcast, and that's about mentors and mentoring. Um, was, did you, you you spoke about one of your early investors um, at Song Player being you know one of the people that brought um, um, some seed found you know brought some seed rounds into your business and so forth? Do you have any mentors that you? Um, look up to you, speak to you, you speak to often to 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 really help your business. And if so, you know how fundamental were they in those pivots in the early days? Yeah, I, I suppose I do. It's interesting. I have one. He's a you know he's a friend. He started off as a friend. He of remains course. a friend, which is yep. great because that's not always the case in these situations. But um, a pal of mine, a guy called Jeremy Fenn, who is he was ex Cooper's Librand. You know, ironically, he was an accountant, but he very quickly became um, an FD uh, on the FTSE 100 at the age of 26. So he's what you call a high flyer. Um, but he understood capital more than I did. I, I understood sales and I had great plans and ambitions to build a company. But in terms of raising money back in, I suppose, 1998, it was a complete, you know, dark art to me. And he was connected. Again, this is his other thing with, with money and the city and all these guys. They're all connected. They all talk to one another. So he put me into an original, uh, the original seed capital for the idea. And this is how mad it was back in 98 because it was a dot-com idea. The fellow he put me into, um, he didn't value any business at less than a million pound. And this was a brand new startup. So we said, yeah, okay, we're a million pound. I'll sell you 15% because I needed 150 grand. And that's how yep. it started. Yeah, we went on through subsequent rounds um, to the the multi, like I said, the multi-millionaire guy. He was a he was our non-exec chair. And I obviously got on okay with him for a couple of years when we were in sort of the center of his attention until the next big thing came along. But I've consistently consulted Jeremy on what to do next. And whenever I've pivoted, whenever I've changed, I mean, the, the biggest pivot, if you like, was in 2004, financial pivot, this is, I yeah. decided that I wanted to, there was talk of the people on the board, because when I floated the business, I ended up with the 24% share owning of a business that I was completely on the hook for everything, which, you know, you learn these things as you go along. 
And I wasn't particularly motivated, but there was talk of doing a, a big deal and it fell, it collapsed. And that was an opportunity for me then to buy everybody else out. So I consulted with Jeremy, who was on both sides of the equation because he was a shareholder, he was on the board, and he had other people uh, who he had an obligation to. But I went to him with a very clear pro proposition saying, this is the deal I'm prepared to do. If anybody else wants to do another deal, that's fine, but I'm not working with you. It's, it's up to you. And he took that on the chin and was still able to maintain his objectivity, recommending it to the rest of the board. So again, that was 2004. And he's still, I mean, I spoke to him today. So in terms of, as you say, that mentoring, I don't think of him as a mentor, but now that you put that question out there, he obviously is. Because yep. every financial decision I make, and now that we're getting into bigger financial decisions, talking to private equity houses, all sorts of things like that going on, he's my go-to guy because he's done the miles and he understands how it works. Absolutely. And, and he's not a sales guy. It's interesting because sales guys like me, it's always upside and it's all upside. There's always. a very little downside. Yeah. You do need somebody to come along and go, yeah, great. Yep. So we get too excited, look at the reality. And that's, that's what he's kind of brought to it. So, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting actually, because I'm, you know, I'm a sales guy, always have been, um, and and now you know managing a team, you you you're so much more objective now as to, you know, okay, you're calling that as your forecast, but you know, let's have a look at that forecast. What's your next steps? Oh, you got no next steps, so why is it in your forecast? Whereas, you know, when you were sales guys and you were on the hook for the number and so forth, it was always upside. It was always going to come in. You knew it was going to come in and you'd do it by hook or by crook. So uh, very interesting. I I, I, I love that. Um, on the flip side to that, um, John, with all the experience you've got as a young man, obviously, but all the experience you've got in um, – you know, early round VC. You know, when when it wasn't even popular, wasn't even in the in the press. Um, what about mentoring yourself? Being a mentor, do you do you do that? And and also, is it something that you really relish? Well, it's it's a good point. Um, the short answer is no. It's not something I currently do. Sure, um, but it's kind of an aspiration that I have because what I've always thought when I sell my business, because that's, that's been an aspiration for a long time. And it's something that's on my, you know, near term horizon. I'd actually like to get involved with um, mentoring social businesses. So, I, you know, I, I'll come clean. My motivation from day one has been all about the dollar. You know, I set up a business very young and that's been the drive. Um, but I see lots of young guns out there with brilliant ideas and they're not about the money. You know, that next generation, they're about the planet, they're about the environment, they're about different things. And I've got to hold my hands up and go, you know, I really respect that. But you know what they need? They need a bit of business smarts as well. Yeah, exactly. So I'd quite like to get involved in mentoring, um, you know, social businesses, third sector businesses, where the, the, the founders have got all of the drive, all of the ambition, and all of the knowledge and insight. But... They might not know the way around a balance sheet. They might not know the way around raising some funding. And they might not know how to present that, to, to, you know, to its best, in its best light. And I'm good at that. So that's where I could see a real synergy. And rather than, you know, and also potentially invest in those things where, yeah, that's, that's a great idea. It's not going to get me, make me a fortune, but it doesn't need to because I've done my business for 25 years. I'll, I've done okay at the end of it. Um, and I, so I see mentoring in that context being something that I'd like to do. I suppose in terms of just giving people advice, 
it is amazing how you when you get older you just see the world differently. You really I, do. I, I still like to think that I'm I'm what I call um, you know, an optimistic realist. I always look for the upside, but I've done so many things of my own where I didn't listen to the objective narrative and blew it that I can now look at stuff very, very quickly and go, okay, I can ask killer questions. And if you can't answer those questions, well, go away and find the answers. Otherwise, it's never, it's a non-starter. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree. It's amazing what age does to you on that, isn't it? You know, um, I recently turned 50 and and I swear I look at things now so much differently than what I did five years ago. Um, uh, I would only, hope... I'll tell you what, Scott, it's one of the only consolations of getting old. Gotta absolutely. Be. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's certainly not the bad back, that's for sure. Um, but I, I, I love that. I, I love that. And it's a perfect segue into a question I, I, I thought of during, you know, while you were talking about, um, you know, the mentoring side of things. And that would be, you know, you've got all these people now. COVID did this. Um, and that was do I really want to go and work for someone else? Do I really want to go into the office? Do I want to get a train to London every day? Do I want to do this? So, so there was that, there was that career shift, wasn't there? There was, there was people taking a good hard look in the mirror over the last two years and finding out what they want to do. And, you know, money in some aspects wasn't the be all and end all. It was, what do I want to do? What's right for my family? What's right for myself, my, my, my mental health, my physical health. Um, So that being the case, you know, you've been there, done that in starting your own business. As you said, you've only worked for someone for two years in your career. What What is the one advice you would give someone wanting to start their own business or, or wants to switch their career path? Is there is there one nugget of information or one one bit of one bit of advice you would go up to someone and say, make sure you do this? Yeah, I think if you're already in a job and you've got a steady career path, then you've got to be brutal with yourself in terms of setting up a a business. Because one of the things that gets people out the door to do businesses for themselves is blind optimism and almost unrealistic in terms of how it'll work. I mean, interesting enough, I've got a younger brother and he's done, um, he was working as an osteopath and setting up his own business. And it's, it's, you know, you get to that point where in any business idea, if you're getting paid for your time and you might be getting paid handsomely for your time, what you've got to recognize is when you ain't doing it, you ain't getting paid. And so that scalability of business opportunity, you know, people, as I said, I've been down this track myself, but if you're in a situation where you, you know, you think you're going to earn a certain amount of money, I would say in any situation, if you're earning 50 grand doing what you're doing, it might be a bit boring. You might be looking for an out. You might want a bit of inspiration. And again, depending on dependence and everything else, but I'd still say just brutally on a financial decision, you need to be making 75 or 100 to justify the risk. Yeah. Because it is a risk. You will have sleepless nights. And when you're not there at the coalface, there's nothing coming in. Yeah, when you're on holiday, you're not earning. So there's a there's just a harsh reality to running your own business. Now we live in a gig economy, and there's loads of people out doing, you know, being self-employed. Yep. That's that's not to me. I'm not a big advocate. I know there was a massive change with COVID. Um, I think there's almost a scenario where people are working in the gig economy because they can't get proper jobs and zero-hour contracts for large organisations 
certainly aren't appealing. So if you're starting from nothing, then yeah, you, ultimately you've got nothing to lose. Yes. But if you've got something, don't throw it away because you know I, I've had the number of people down the years who said to me, "Oh, you work for yourself? That's fantastic. That must be. That's just you know you can do what you want." You know, you've heard that. Oh, I can do what I want, can I? Yeah, yeah. tell that to my wife and kids. You know, it's, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. It's just brutal out there. Now, I'm a I'm a big advocate for enterprise. I want you know there to be opportunity. But you know, one thing I've learned, and it took me an awful long time to learn, is the clarity of your proposition. What is it you're doing? What is it that makes you better or different to the competition? And you know, realistically, how long is it going to take? to replace your current earnings or improve yeah. your current earnings. Yeah. Um, that's, uh, that's yeah, the- no, I, I like that a lot, John, actually, because, you know, the term side hustle is something yeah. that a lot of people talk about now, right? Yeah. And yeah. Um, and a lot of people do things on the side, you know, whether it's sit on a board or, um, or consult three hours a week, you know, in the evenings, um, you know, that kind of thing. And I, I'm a massive advocate for that. You know, if, if it's something that you enjoy doing and you can earn a little bit of a, a buck on the side to do this or do that, get a better holiday, earn it, you know, drive a nicer car, whatever. I'm a massive fan of that. Um, but what you're saying here is, you know, keep it as a side hustle, see if it's sustainable, see if it's actually a business that's going to generate revenue. Um, whilst, having it in the back of your mind that if it does generate that revenue, then you can take that risk. But instead of just doing that leap of faith or that blind leap of faith without, without having anything in the background is, is the best way of doing it. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Scott, because yeah. you know what it's like. I, yeah. Again, my brother, years ago, he was, um, he's been, he's done every fitness trend there is, you know, so whether it was um, whatever Reebok step classes, fitness classes, you name it, he did them all. And he earned good, as you say, as a side hustle. It was brilliant. He had yeah. lots of money coming in. But to turn that into a full-time gig, and that's where I came to the, when I, like I said, we're talking to him, but well, how many hours is that going to take? How many classes realistically do you have to do? How do you recruit those people? How do you get them to come back, et cetera, et cetera? Now, what you do then is you turn what was actually a really enjoyable side hustle into an absolute nightmare because suddenly everything is teetering on top of that proposition. I now need to replace the 40 hours a week I was working for the man and replace what I was getting on my side hustle. And so on top of that, because I still want to take a holiday. And, you know, I I think you're right. The side hustle is strong. It's always been strong. And some great businesses have been built from absolutely, absolutely yeah. agree. I'm all for it. I never, I was never fortunate enough to have one, but I get it. Yeah, I absolutely. Yeah, agree. no, I, I, I absolutely agree with you. Absolutely agree. We're coming up to the end of our time, John, and and sadly, um, we could go on for for, for <laughs> hours. And I, I tend to say that with every guest because I get I get stuck into a rut, and I just want to know more. I want to know more. I want to know more. So, um, but I do realize we have time constraints. The the last main question before we get into our quick fire three is. Um, what's what's the future for for John Doyle, and what's the future for Voicegate? <coughs> Excuse me. Um, well, the future for Voicegate, coming back to my um, starting position of hope not being a strategy, and as I say, gone through iterations of business where it was, and it was to a lesser degree. I think where we are now is we have at Voicegate a really solid strategy, and it. It's built around a number of things, really. First of all, 
innovation. So we innovate. We're not, you know, I'm not saying we're up for innovation awards because we're such innovators, but we innovate. And the way we innovate is we innovate with our customers. We build nothing that's a hero application. So our customers have got problems. We recognize those problems. We work with our customers to innovate. Having done that, we then iterate. Can we take that out of social housing and put it into local authorities? Can we take it out of local authorities and put it into utility companies, et cetera? So innovate, iterate, but then the most important by far is we execute. Yeah. Because ultimately we're talking about delivering a value proposition. And as I said earlier in the chat, when you're doing software as a service, it's subscription-based. You might have one-year, two-year, three-year contracts, but ultimately you're measured on the value that you deliver and it has to be measurable. So that's all about the execution. So those three components Love that. drive the strategy at VoiceScape and it's in great shape. So as a business, you know, ultimately I feel I've taken it to a point. I founded it from the ground. We're going to be in a position at the end of this financial year where we'll take on private equity and then there'll be another round of, right, where do we go from there? Because the growth opportunity within the space that we operate is significant. The probability is I won't be chief exec driving it forward yep. because I've made a life decision at 25 years. I think I've done a shift. And that's where I will look to back out of that organization and perhaps fulfill some of those aspirations I talked about earlier. Love that. Love that. And 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 to be honest with you, that's where some of the some of the great businesses or the great businesses in the in the background could have been greater if the actual founders, owners, CEOs took a step back and said, you know what, there's probably someone out there that could do this better than me. Um, I've taken it to this level and let's get someone in to take it to the next stratosphere or whatever. I I, I that takes a lot of courage to me, and I uh, I think that's a fantastic uh, fantastic attitude. Thanks, um, Scott. Thanks. It took a while to get to it. Let me tell you, but yeah. I'm sure it does. Yeah, you, you realise it's the right thing. Yeah, pride always comes into it, and all, all that kind of stuff. I'm sure. Um, I love those three the these three pillars, if you will: innovate, iterate, and execute. I think they're great. They're great pillars. And and to be honest with you, in um, as you know, I'm in technology and the, and the technology space as well. They're three pillars that uh, that every every organisation in our space needs to have. And if they don't they're probably not going to be around for much longer. So um, I, I, I love that uh, philosophy. John, thank you so much for going through that. And as I said, there's there's probably a hell of a lot more we could probably do in two, three, four, five different episodes. Um, but I'm going to hit you with a quick fire three, if I may. And, and, and my first question to you is, if you had to live in one city for the rest of your life, where would it be and why? Oh, that's a good question. Um... Probably Geneva. Yeah, good one. Going there in a few months, so I'm looking forward to you, your answer on this one, mate. Yeah, well, I lived in Switzerland already. I lived there for seven years. My children both fluent in French because we lived up the valley from Geneva. Um, the whole area is fantastic. The climate's great. The tax regime is sensible. I'm not saying it's cheaper. It's sensible. Um, the standard of living's high. And the general outlook, um, you know, they're in the centre of Europe. They've yeah. never been in the EU. Yeah, It's not a problem. We could be able to work it out. So, you know, that's where I'd be. Yeah, love it. I actually flew over on a plane going into Lyon last week and I thought, quite like it down there. So we've booked <laughs> tickets to go there uh, uh, in, in December. So 
Thank you for that. That's a really good one. Um, number two, if you could interview a famous person, whether they be dead or alive, who would it be? Oh, probably David Bowie. Oh, the good one. Yeah. Um, just for the same reason as everybody else would, brought up on his, you know, ever-changing mood and his ever-changing, you know, characters, persona, music. Um, just where did it all come from? I'd just be, I'd love to know, you know, you talk about inspiration for business, just inspiration for the arts. Where did he come up with those ideas? And how did he have the nuts to perform knowing he was dying? You know, he did that last video as, as, as a, almost as a guy who was dying. And that yeah. was, you know, taking his art to the ultimate degree. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, I think he'd be an interesting guy. And he was also a bit of a naughty boy as well, so that'd be interesting. A little bit of an edge about him, which is always good, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Love that, love that. Number three and final question. What is the most unexpected piece of advice you ever received? Or have you? Um, funnily enough, I got one piece of advice, and it was from the landlord of my flat in the third year at uh, Liverpool Poly, as it was when I was there. It's John Moore's now. But, and he, he was an accountant. Um, an old guy. He was probably, I don't know, everybody's old when you're, tw when you're 20, 21, but he was, of course, yeah, yeah. You know, he was retired. So let's say he was 70. Um, and he said to me at a time when I was just finishing my degree, look, don't get stereotyped into any one thing. You've got to be adaptable. This was 1985. You've got to be adaptable. And it's always stuck with me because it's never been truer than it is right now, you know, and as you said, I've been able to pivot. I've always had that in my mind. So that piece of advice obviously stuck there because it's like, okay, what next? How do we do it? Um, and it was reinforced, funnily enough, similar thing in at a trade show in Atlanta in the late 90s. We had a Marine, because over there, you have to use the guys on the stands. I think That's it's like right. the Teamsters, the unions or whatever. That's right, yeah. <laughs> and there was this guy on the stand, a massive you know, ex-Marine, really interesting fella. And it is his sort of motto to live by, you know, was adapt and overcome. Probably came out of the Marines, you know, you gotta adapt and overcome. And yeah. I just thought, yeah, you're right. So it's that that sort of having that uh, that would be the piece of advice that sticks out with me because I've had it he gave it to me what too long ago to remember. <laughs> adapt and overcome is so apt after the last two years. Precisely. Yeah. So it's so apt. And and to be honest with you, it's probably more, it's a life lesson as opposed to anything else, isn't it really? Yeah. yeah so John, thoroughly enjoyed our time today. I I really enjoyed the story. Uh, so many things resonated with me. You know, uh, I haven't heard the term uh, OFX for <laughs> years and, and I was part of a company that was on Offix. So um, it was great to, to relive those memories or, or maybe it wasn't. Anyway, that's another story we could have some some other time. Yeah. Um, great. Good luck with, with VoiceScape. It, it sounds like it's it's the journey is still going and it sounds like that there's so much more to do within that organisation and within that business. So so good luck with that. I'm, I'm looking forward to following that myself and, and, and seeing how it all goes. Um, Thanks so much for your time today. Good luck with your podcast, and thank you for uh, for being on here and not being too uh, uh, too critical of my uh, new skills of interviewing people. Um, I really appreciate you being on here, and, and and thanks for your time, and good luck for the rest of the year and and going into twenty three as well. Thanks very much, Scott. It's been a real pleasure. Good on you. Thanks, mate.
John, thanks so much for speaking to me today. And what I really enjoyed about the conversation was John's ability to look at a market, develop a solution or products to suit and determine at certain points if they're viable or not and pivot to suit. His wise words about starting your own business. It's not all about the macho thing of going all out, quitting your current job and making you determined to succeed, but be more prudent to cover yourself. Have the backing and not just using blind faith to get you through. Make sure you have a plan and have the finances behind you to support during the tough times if they eventuate. I also like John's three pillars he used to be successful in making sure your business plan follows the innovate, iterate and execute mantra. One of the best pieces of advice he received was don't get stereotyped into one thing, always be adaptable. And I really, really enjoy that phrase. Thanks again, John. Good luck in the future. Remember to reach out and tell us what you think of our podcast and suggest any guests you may like us to interview and get to know better. Thanks again for joining me. And as always, take care, stay safe and keep on innovating.